0: Chapter thirty-seven of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty-seven Culmination Saint Seducing Gold Romeo and Juliet When our actions do not, our fears do make us traitors Macbeth. I never saw such a look of mortal triumph on the face of a man as that which crossed the countenance of the detective. "'Well,' said he, "'this is unexpected, but not wholly unwelcome. I am truly glad to learn that Miss Leavenworth is innocent. But I must hear some few more particulars before I shall be satisfied. Get up, Mr. Harwell, and explain yourself. "'If you are the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth, how comes it that things look so black against everybody but yourself?' But in the hot feverish eyes which sought him from the writhing form at his feet, there was a mad anxiety and pain, but little explanation. Seeing him making unavailing efforts to speak, I drew near. "'Lean on me,' said I, lifting him to his feet his face relieved for ever from its mask of repression turned towards me with the look of a despairing spirit save save he gasped save her mary they are sending a report stop it yes broke in another voice if there is a man here who believes in god and prizes woman's honour let him stop the issue of that report and henry clavering dignified as ever but in a state of extreme agitation stepped into our midst, through an open door at our right. But at the sight of his face the man in our arms quivered, shrieked, and gave one bound that would have overturned Mr. Clavering, Herculean of frame as he was, had not Mr. Gryce interposed. "'Wait!' he cried, and holding back the secretary with one hand, where was his rheumatism now? He put the other in his pocket and drew thence a document, which he held up before Mr. Clavering. "'It has not gone yet,' said he. "'Be easy.' "'And you,' he went on turning towards Truman Harwell, "'be quiet, or—' His sentence was cut short by the man springing from his grasp. "'Let me go!' he shrieked. "'Let me have my revenge on him, "'who in the face of all I have done for Mary Leavenworth "'dares to call her his wife. "'Let me—' But at this point he paused, "'his quivering frame stiffening into stone.' and his clutching hands outstretched for his rival's throat, falling heavily back. "'Hark!' said he, glaring over Mr. Clavering's shoulder. "'It is she! I hear her! I feel her! She is on the stairs! She is at the door! She!' A low, shuddering sigh of longing and despair finished the sentence. The door opened, and Mary Leavenworth stood before us. It was a moment to make young hairs turn grey. To see her face so pale, so haggard, so wild in its fixed horror, turned towards Henry Clavering, to the utter ignoring of the real actor in this most horrible scene. Truman Harwell could not stand it. "'Ah! Ah!' he cried. "'Look at her! Cold! Cold! Not one glance for me, though I have just drawn the halter from her neck and fastened it about my own!' and breaking from the clasp of the man who in his jealous rage would now have withheld him he fell on his knees before mary clutching her dress with frenzied hands you shall look at me he cried you shall listen to me i will not lose body and soul for nothing mary they said you were in peril i could not endure that thought so i uttered the truth yes though i knew what the consequences would be and all I want now is for you to say you believe me, when I swear that I only meant to secure you the fortune you so much desired, that I never dreamed it would come to this, that it was because I loved you, and hoped to win your love in return, that I—' But she did not seem to see him, did not seem to hear him. Her eyes were fixed upon Henry Clavering with an awful inquiry in their depths, and none but he could move her. "'You do not hear me.' shrieked the poor wretch. "'Ice that you are! You would not turn your head if I should call you from the depths of hell!' But even this cry fell unheeded. Pushing her hands down upon his shoulders as though she would sweep some impediment from her path, she endeavoured to advance. "'Why is that man here?' she cried, indicating her husband with one quivering hand. "'What has he done that he should be brought here to confront me at this awful time?' i told her to come here to meet her uncle's murderer whispered mr gryce into my ear but before i could reply to her before mr clavering himself could murmur a word the guilty wretch before her had started to his feet don't you know then i will tell you it is because these gentlemen chivalrous and honourable as they consider themselves think that you the beauty and the sybarite committed with your own white hand the deed of blood which has brought you freedom and fortune yes this man turning and pointing at me friend as he had friend as he has made himself out to be kindly and honourable as you have doubtless believed him but who in every look he has bestowed upon you every word he has uttered in your hearing during all these four horrible weeks has been weaving a cord for your neck thinks you the assassin of your uncle and knowing that a man stood at your side ready to sweep half the world from your path if that same white hand rose in bidding during all those that i-you ah now she could see him now she could hear him yes clutching her robe again as she hastily recoiled didn't you know it "'When in that dreadful hour of your rejection by your uncle "'you cried aloud for someone to help you, didn't you know?' "'Don't!' she shrieked, bursting from him with a look of unspeakable horror. "'Don't say that! Oh!' she gasped. "'Is the mad cry of a stricken woman for aid and sympathy the call for a murderer?' And turning away in horror, she moaned, "'Who that ever looks at me now will forget that a man—such a man—dared to think that because—' I was in mortal perplexity, I would accept the murder of my best friend as a relief from it. Her horror was unbounded. Oh, what a chastisement for folly! she murmured. What a punishment for the love of money which has always been my curse! Henry Clavering could no longer restrain himself. Leaping to her side, he bent over her. Was it nothing but folly, Mary? Are you guiltless of any deeper wrong? Is there no link of complicity between you two? Have you nothing on your soul but an inordinate desire to preserve your place in your uncle's will, even at the risk of breaking my heart and wronging your noble cousin? Are you innocent in this matter? Tell me!" Placing his hand on her head, he pressed it slowly back and gazed into her eyes, then without a word, took her to his breast and looked calmly around him. "'She is innocent,' said he. It was the uplifting of a stifling pall. No one in the room, unless it was the wretched criminal shivering before us, but felt a sudden influx of hope. Even Mary's own countenance caught a glow. "'Oh!' she whispered, withdrawing from his arms to look better into his face. "'And is this the man I have trifled with, injured, and tortured? Till the very name of Mary Leavenworth might well make him shudder, Is this he whom I married in a fit of caprice, only to forsake and deny? Henry, do you declare me innocent in face of all you have seen and heard, in face of that moaning, chattering wretch before us, and my own quaking flesh and evident terror, with the remembrance on your heart and in your mind of the letter I wrote you the morning after the murder, in which I prayed you to keep away from me? as I was in such deadly danger, the least hint given to the world, that I had a secret to conceal would destroy me? Do you, can you, will you declare me innocent before God and the world?" "'I do,' said he. A light such as had never visited her face before passed slowly over it. "'Then God forgive me the wrong I have done this noble heart, for I can never forgive myself. "'Wait!' she said, as he opened his lips, "'before I accept any further tokens of your generous confidence, let me show you what I am. You shall know the worst of the woman you have taken to your heart. "'Mr. Raymond,' she cried, turning towards me for the first time, "'in those days when, with such an earnest desire for my welfare—' "'You see, I do not believe this man's insinuations.' You sought to induce me to speak out and tell all I knew concerning this dreadful deed. I did not do it because of my selfish fears. I knew the case looked dark against me. Eleanor had told me so. Eleanor herself, and it was the keenest pang I had to endure, believed me guilty. She had her reasons. She knew first from the directed envelope she had found lying underneath my uncle's dead body on the library table that he had been engaged at the moment of death in summoning his lawyer to make that change in his will which would transfer my claims to her. Secondly, that, notwithstanding my denial of the same, I had been down to his room the night before, for she had heard my door open and my dress rustle as I passed out. But that was not all. The key that every one felt to be a positive proof of guilt wherever found had been picked up by her from the floor of my room. The letter written by Mr. Clavering to my uncle was found in my fire, and the handkerchief which she had seen me take from the basket of clean clothes was produced at the inquest stained with pistol-grease. I could not account for these things. A web seemed tangled about my feet. I could not stir without encountering some new toil. I knew I was innocent, but if I failed to satisfy my cousin of this, how could I hope to convince the general public, if once called upon to do so? Worse still, if Eleanor, with every apparent motive for desiring long life to her uncle, was held in such suspicion because of a few circumstantial evidences against her, what would I not have to fear if these evidences were turned against me, the heiress?" The tone and manner of the juryman, at the inquest, that asked, who would be most benefited by my uncle's will, showed but too plainly. When therefore Eleanor, true to her heart's generous instincts, closed her lips and refused to speak, when speech would have been my ruin, I let her do it, justifying myself with the thought that she had deemed me capable of crime, and so must bear the consequences. Nor, when I saw how dreadful these were likely to prove, did I relent fear of the ignominy, suspense, and danger which confession would entail sealed my lips. Only once did I hesitate. That was when, in the last conversation we had, I saw that notwithstanding appearances you believed in Eleanor's innocence, and the thought crossed me you might be induced to believe in mine if I threw myself upon your mercy. But just then Mr. Clavering came, and as in a flash I seemed to realize what my future life would be stained by suspicion, and instead of yielding to my impulse, went so far in the other direction as to threaten Mr. Clavering with a denial of our marriage if he approached me again till all danger was over. Yes, he will tell you, that was my welcome to him, when, with heart and brain racked by long suspense, he came to my door for one word of assurance that the peril I was in was not of my own making. That was the greeting I gave him, after a year of silence, every moment of which was torture to him. But he forgives me. I see it in his eyes. I hear it in his accents. And you, oh, if in the long years to come you can forget what I have made Eleanor suffer by my selfish fears, if with the shadow of her wrong before you, you can, by the grace of some sweet hope, think a little less hardly of me do so as for this man torture could not be worse to me than this standing with him in the same room let him come forward and declare if i by look or word have given him reason to believe i understood his passion much less returned it why ask he gasped don't you see it was your indifference which drove me mad to stand before you to agonize after you to follow you with thoughts in every move you made To know my soul was welded to yours with bands of steel no fire could melt, no force destroy, no strain dissever, to sleep under the same roof, sit at the same table, and yet meet not so much as one look to show me you understood. It was that which made my life a hell. I was determined you should understand, if I had to leap into a pit of flame, you should know what I was, and what my passion for you was. And you do. You comprehend it all now, shrink as you will from my presence, cower as you may from the weak man you call husband. You can never forget the love of Truman Harwell. never forget that love love, love was the force which led me down into your uncle's room that night and lent me will to pull the trigger which poured all wealth you hold this day into your lap. Yes, he went on towering in his preternatural despair till even the noble form of Henry Clavering looked dwarfed beside him, every dollar that chinks from your purse shall talk of me. Every giggle which flashes on that haughty head, too haughty to bend to me, shall shriek my name into your ears. Fashion, pomp, luxury, you will have them all, but till gold loses its glitter and ease its attraction, you will never forget the hand that gave them to you. With a look, whose evil triumph I cannot describe, he put his hand into the arm of the waiting detective, and in another moment would have been led from the room, when Mary, crushing down the swell of emotions that was seething in her breast, lifted her head and said, "'No, Truman Harwell, I cannot give you even that thought for your comfort. Wealth so laden would bring nothing but torture. I cannot accept the torture, so must release the wealth.' From this day, Mary Clavering owns nothing, but what comes to her from the husband she has so long and so basely wronged. And raising her hands to her ears, she tore out the diamonds which hung there, and flung them at the feet of the unfortunate man. It was the final wrench of the rack. With a yell such as I never thought to listen to from the lips of a man, he flung up his arms, while all the lurid light of madness glared on his face. "'And I have given my soul to hell for a shadow!' he moaned. "'For a shadow!' "'Well, that is the best day's work I ever did. "'Your congratulations, Mr. Raymond, "'upon the success of the most daring game ever played in a detective's office.' "'I looked at the triumphant countenance of Mr. Grice in amazement. "'What do you mean?' I cried. "'Did you plan all this?' "'Did I plan it?' he repeated. "'Could I stand here, seeing how things have turned out, if I had not? "'Mr. Raymond, let us be comfortable. "'You are a gentleman, but we can well shake hands over this. "'I have never known such a satisfactory conclusion to a bad piece of business in all my professional career.' "'We did shake hands, long and fervently, and then I asked him to explain himself. "'Well,' said he, There has always been one thing that plagued me, even in the very moment of my strongest suspicion against this woman, and that was the pistol-cleaning business. I could not reconcile it with what I knew of womankind. I could not make it seem the act of a woman. Did you ever know a woman who cleaned a pistol? No. They can fire them, and do but after firing them they do not clean them. Now it is a principle which every detective recognises, that if of a hundred leading circumstances connected with a crime, ninety-nine of these are acts pointing to the suspected party with unerring certainty, but the hundredth equally important act, one which that person could not have performed, The whole fabric of suspicion is destroyed. Recognising this principle, then, as I have said, I hesitated when it came to the point of arrest. The chain was complete, the links were fastened, but one link was of a different size and material from the rest, and in this argued a break in the chain. I resolved to give her a final chance. Summering, Mr. Clavering, and Mr. Harwell, two persons, whom I had no reason to suspect, but who were the only persons beside herself who could have committed this crime, being the only persons of intellect who were in the house, or believed to be, at the time of the murder, I notified them separately, that the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth was not only found, but was about to be arrested in my house, and that if they wished to hear the confession which would be sure to follow, they might have the opportunity of doing so by coming here at such an hour. They were both too much interested, though for very different reasons, to refuse, and I succeeded in inducing them to conceal themselves in the two rooms from which you saw them issue, knowing that if either of them had committed this deed, He had done it for the love of Mary Leavenworth, and consequently could not hear her charged with the crime and threatened with arrest, without betraying himself. I did not hope much from the experiment. Least of all did I anticipate that Mr. Harwell would prove to be the guilty man. But live and learn, Mr. Raymond, live and learn. End of chapter 37 Chapter thirty eight of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This Librivox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER thirty eight A Full Confession Between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, all the interim is like a phantasma or a hideous dream. The genius and the mortal instruments are then in council, and the state of a man, like to a little kingdom, Suffers then the nature of an insurrection. Julius Caesar. I am not a bad man. I am only an intense one. Ambition, love, jealousy, hatred, revenge, transitory emotions with some, are terrific passions with me. To be sure, they are quiet and concealed ones, coiled serpents that make no stir till aroused, but then deadly in their spring and relentless in their action. Those who have known me best have not known this. My own mother was ignorant of it. Often and often I have heard her say, if Truman only had more sensibility, if Truman were not so indifferent to everything, in short, if Truman had more power in him. It was the same at school. No one understood me. They thought me meek, called me dough-face. For three years they called me this. Then I turned upon them. Choosing out their ringleader, I felled him to the ground, laid him on his back, and stamped upon him. He was handsome before my foot came down. Afterwards, well, it is enough he never called me Doughface face again. In the store I entered soon after, I met with even less appreciation. Regular at my work, and exact in my performance of it, they thought me a good machine and nothing more. What heart, soul, and feeling could a man have who never sported, never smoked, and never laughed? I could reckon up figures correctly, but one scarcely needed heart or soul for that. I could even write day by day and month by month without showing a flaw in my copy, but that only argued I was no more than they intimated, a regular automaton. I let them think so, with the certainty before me that they would one day change their minds as others had done the fact was i loved nobody well enough not even myself to care for any man's opinion life was well nigh a blank to me a dead level plain that had to be traversed whether i would or not and such it might have continued to this day if i had never met mary leavenworth but when some nine months since i left my desk in the counting-house for a seat in mr leavenworth's library A blazing torch fell into my soul, whose flame has never gone out, and never will till the doom before me is accomplished. She was so beautiful! When on that first evening I followed my new employer into the parlour, and saw this woman standing up before me in her half-alluring, half-appalling charm, I knew, as by a lightning flash, what my future would be if I remained in that house. She was in one of her haughty moods and bestowed upon me little more than a passing glance. But her indifference made slight impression upon me then. It was enough that I was allowed to stand in her presence, and look unrebuked upon her loveliness. To be sure, it was like gazing into the flower-wreathed crater of an awakening volcano. Fear and fascination were in each moment I lingered there. But fear and fascination made the moment what it was, and I could not have withdrawn if I would. And so it was always. Unspeakable pain, as well as pleasure, was in the emotion with which I regarded her. Yet for all that I did not cease to study her hour by hour, and day by day, her smiles, her movement, her way of turning her head or lifting her eyelids. I had a purpose in this. I wished to knit her beauty so firmly into the warp and woof of my being that nothing could ever serve to tear it away for i saw then as plainly as now that coquette though she was she would never stoop to me no i might lie down at her feet and let her trample over me she would not even turn to see what it was she had stepped upon i might spend days months years learning the alphabet of her wishes she would not thank me for my pains or even raise the lashes from her cheek to look at me as i passed i was nothing to her could not be anything unless and this thought came slowly i could in some way become her master meantime i wrote at mr leavenworth's dictation and pleased him my methodical ways were just to his taste as for the other member of the family miss Eleanor leavenworth she treated me just as one of her proud but sympathetic nature might be expected to do not familiarly but kindly not as a friend, but as a member of the household whom she met every day at table, and who, as she or anyone else could see, was none too happy or hopeful. Six months went by. I had learned two things. First, that Mary Leavenworth loved her position as prospective heiress to a large fortune above every other earthly consideration, and, secondly, that she was in the possession of a secret which endangered that position— What this was I had for some time no means of knowing, but when later I became convinced it was one of love, I grew hopeful, strange as it may seem, for by this time I had learned Mr. Leavenworth's disposition almost as perfectly as that of his niece, and knew that in a matter of this kind he would be uncompromising, and that in the clashing of these two wills something might occur which would give me a hold upon her. The only thing that troubled me was the fact that I did not know the name of the man in whom she was interested. But chance soon favoured me here. One day, a month ago now, I sat down to open Mr. Leavenworth's mail, as usual. One letter, shall I ever forget it, ran thus. Hoffman House, March 1st, 1876. Mr. Horatio Leavenworth. Dear Sir, you have a niece whom you love and trust. One too who seems worthy of all the love and trust that you or any other man can give her so beautiful so charming so tender is she in face form manner and conversation but dear sir every rose has its thorn and your rose is no exception to this rule lovely as she is charming as she is tender as she is she is not only capable of trampling on the rights of one who trusted her but of bruising the heart and breaking the spirit of him to whom she owes all duty honour and observance if you don't believe this ask her to her cruel bewitching face who and what is her humble servant and yours henry ritchie clavering if a bomb-shell had exploded at my feet or the evil one himself appeared at my call i would not have been more astounded not only was the name signed to these remarkable words unknown to me but the epistle itself was that of one who felt himself to be her master, a position which, as you know, I was myself aspiring to occupy. For a few minutes then I stood a prey to feelings of the bitterest wrath and despair. Then I grew calm, realising that, with this letter in my possession, I was virtually the arbitrator of her destiny. Some men would have sought her there and then, and by threatening to place it in her uncle's hand, won from her, a look of entreaty, if no more, but I—well, my plans went deeper than that. I knew she would have to be in extremity before I could hope to win her. She must feel herself slipping over the edge of the precipice before she would clutch at the first thing offering succour. I decided to allow the letter to pass into my employer's hands, but it had been opened. How could I manage to give it to him, in this condition, without exciting his suspicion? I knew of but one way—to let him see me open it, for what he would consider the first time. So, waiting till he came into the room, I approached him with the letter, tearing off the end of the envelope as I came. Opening it, I gave a cursory glance at its contents and tossed it down on the table before him. That appears to be of a private character, said I, although there is no sign to that effect on the envelope. He took it up while I stood there at the first word he started, looked at me, seemed satisfied from my expression that I had not read far enough to realize its nature, and, whirling slowly around in his chair, devoured the remainder in silence. I waited a moment, then withdrew to my own desk. One minute, two minutes passed in silence. He was evidently re-reading the letter. Then he hurriedly rose and left the room. As he passed me, I caught a glimpse of his face in the mirror. The expression I saw there did not tend to lessen the hope that was rising in my breast. By following him almost immediately upstairs, I ascertained that he went directly to Mary's room, and, when in a few hours later the family collected around the dinner-table, I perceived, almost without looking up, that a great and insurmountable barrier had been raised between him and his favourite niece. Two days passed days that were for me one long and unrelieved suspense had mr leavenworth answered that letter would it all end as it had begun without the appearance of the mysterious clavering on the scene i could not tell meanwhile my monotonous work went on grinding my heart beneath its relentless wheel i wrote and wrote and wrote till it seemed as if my life-blood went from me with every drop of ink i used. Always alert and listening, I dared not lift my head or turn my eyes at any unusual sound, lest I should seem to be watching. On the third night I had a dream. I have already told Mr. Raymond what it was, and hence will not repeat it here. One correction, however, I wish to make in regard to it. In my statement to him, I declared that the face of the man whom I saw lift his hand against my employer was that of Mr. Clavering. I lied when I said this. The face seen by me in my dream was my own. It was that fact which made it so horrible to me. In the crouching figure stealing warily downstairs, I saw as in a glass the vision of my own form. Otherwise my account of the matter was true. The vision had a tremendous effect upon me. Was it a premonition, a forewarning of the way in which I was to win this coveted creature for my own? Was the death of her uncle the bridge by which the impassable gulf between us might be spanned? I began to think it might be. To consider the possibilities which could make this the only path to my Elysium. even went so far as to picture her lovely face bending gratefully towards me through the glare of a sudden release from some emergency in which she stood. One thing was sure. If that was the way I must go, I had at least been taught how to tread it and all through the dizzy, blurred day that followed, I saw, as I sat at my work, repeated visions of that stealthy, purposeful figure, stealing down the stairs, and entering with uplifted pistol, into the unconscious presence of my employer. I even found myself, a dozen times that day, turning my eyes upon the door through which it was to come, wondering how long it would be before my actual form would pause there. That the moment was at hand I did not imagine. Even when I left him that night after drinking with him the glass of sherry mentioned at the inquest, I had no idea the hour of action was so near. But when, not three minutes after going upstairs, I caught the sound of a lady's dress rustling through the hall, and listening, heard Mary Leavenworth pass my door on her way to the library, I realized that the fatal hour was come, that something was going to be said, or done, in that room, which would make this deed necessary." what i determined to ascertain casting about in my mind for the means of doing so i remembered that the ventilator running up through the house opened first into the passageway connecting mr leavenworth's bedroom and library and secondly into the closet of the large spare room adjoining mine hastily unlocking the door of the communication between the rooms i took my position in the closet instantly the sound of voices reached my ears all was open below and standing there I was as much an auditor of what went on between Mary and her uncle as if I were in the library itself. And what did I hear? Enough to assure me my suspicions were correct. That it was a moment of vital interest to her. That Mr. Leavenworth, in pursuance of a threat evidently made some time since, was in the act of taking steps to change his will, and that she had come to make an appeal to be forgiven her fault and restored to his favour. What that fault was I did not learn. No mention was made of Mr. Clavering as her husband. I only heard her declare that her action had been the result of impulse rather than love, that she regretted it, and desired nothing more than to be free from all obligations to one she would fain forget, and be again to her uncle what she was before she ever saw this man. I thought, fool that I was, it was a mere engagement she was alluding to and took the insanest hope from these words, and when, in a moment later, I heard her uncle reply in his sternest tone, that she had irreparably forfeited her claims to his regard and favour, I did not need her short and bitter cry of shame and disappointment, or that low moan, for some one to help her, for me to sound his death-knell in my heart. Creeping back to my own room, I waited till I heard her reascend. Then I stole forth. Calm as I had ever been in my life, I went down the stairs, just as I had seen myself do in my dream, and, knocking lightly at the library door, went in. Mr. Leavenworth was sitting in his usual place, writing. "'Excuse me,' said I, as he looked up, "'I have lost my memorandum-book, and think it possible I may have dropped it in the passageway when I went for the wine.' He bowed, and I hurried past him into the closet. Once there, I proceeded rapidly into the room beyond, procured the pistol, returned, and almost, before I realized what I was doing, had taken up my position behind him, aimed and fired. The result was what you know. Without a groan, his head fell forward on his hands, and Mary Leavenworth was the virtual possessor of the thousands she coveted my first thought was to procure the letter he was writing approaching the table i tore it out from under his hands looked at it saw that it was as i expected a summons to his lawyer and thrust it into my pocket together with the letter from mr clavering which i perceived lying spattered with blood on the table before me not till this was done did i think of myself or remember the echo which that low sharp report must have made in the house dropping the pistol at the side of the murdered man I stood ready to shriek to any one who entered that Mr. Leavenworth had killed himself, but I was saved from committing such a folly. The report had not been heard, or, if so, had evidently failed to create an alarm. No one came, and I was left to contemplate my work undisturbed, and decide upon the best course to be taken to avoid detection. A moment's study of the wound, made in his head by the bullet, convinced me of the impossibility of passing the affair off as a suicide or even the work of a burglar to any one versed in such matters it was manifestly a murder and a most deliberate one my one hope then lay in making it as mysterious as it was deliberate by destroying all due to the motive and manner of the deed picking up the pistol i carried it into the other room with the intention of cleaning it but finding nothing there to do it with came back for the handkerchief i had seen lying on the floor at mr leavenworth's feet it was miss eleanor's but i did not know it till i had used it to clean the barrel then the sight of her initials in one corner so shocked me i forgot to clean the cylinder and only thought of how i could do away with this evidence of her handkerchief having been employed for a purpose so suspicious not daring to carry it from the room i sought for means to destroy it but finding none, compromised the matter by thrusting it deep down behind the cushion of one of the chairs, in the hope of being able to recover and burn it the next day. This done, I reloaded the pistol, locked it up, and prepared to leave the room. But here the horror which usually follows such deeds struck me like a thunderbolt, and made me for the first time uncertain in my action. I locked the door on going out, something I should never have done. Not till I had reached the top of the stairs did I realise my folly, and then it was too late. For there before me, candle in hand, and surprise written on every feature of her face, stood Hannah, one of the servants, looking at me. sir," where have you been?' she cried. But strange to say, in a low tone, you look as if you had seen a ghost.' And her eyes turned suspiciously to the key which I held in my hand. I felt as if someone had clutched me round the throat. Thrusting the key into my pocket, I took a step towards her. "'I will tell you what I have seen if you will come downstairs,' I whispered. "'The ladies will be disturbed if we talk here.' And smoothing my brow as best I could, I put out my hand and drew her towards me. What my motive was, I hardly knew. The action was probably instinctive. But when I saw the look which came into her face as I touched her, and the clarity with which she prepared to follow me... I took courage, remembering the one or two previous tokens I had of this girl's unreasonable susceptibility to my influence, a susceptibility which I now felt could be utilised, and made to serve my purpose. Taking her down to the parlour-floor, I drew her into the depths of the great drawing-room, and there told her in the least alarming way possible what had happened to Mr. Leavenworth. She was of course intensely agitated, but she did not scream the novelty of her position evidently bewildering her, and greatly relieved I went on to say that I did not know who had committed the deed, but that folks would declare that it was I if they knew I had been seen by her on the stairs with the library key in my hand. But I won't tell, she whispered, trembling violently in her fright and eagerness, I will keep it to myself, I will say I didn't see anybody. But I soon convinced her that she could never keep her secret if the police once began to question her, and following up my argument with a little cajolery, succeeded after a long while in winning her consent to leave the house till the storm should be blown over, but that given it was some little time before I could make her comprehend that she must depart at once, and without going back after her things, not till I brightened up her wits, by a promise to marry her some day, if she only obeyed me now, did she begin to look the thing in the face, and show any evidence of the real mother wit she evidently possessed. Mrs. Belden would take me in, said she, if I could only get to R. She takes everybody in who asks her, and she would keep me too, if I told her Miss Mary sent me, but I can't get there to-night. I immediately set to work to convince her that she could. The midnight train did not leave the city for half-hour yet. And the distance to the depot could be easily walked by her in fifteen minutes. But she had no money. I easily supplied that. And she was afraid she couldn't find her way. I entered into minutest directions. She still hesitated, but at length consented to go, and, with some further understanding of the method I was to employ in communicating with her, we went downstairs. There we found a hat and shawl of the cook's, which I put on her, and in another moment we were in the carriage-yard. "'Remember, you are to say nothing of what has occurred, no matter what happens,' I whispered, imparting injunction as she turned to leave me. "'Remember, you are to come and marry me some day,' she murmured in reply, throwing her arms around my neck. The movement was sudden, and it was probably at this time she dropped the candle she had unconsciously held, clenched in her hand till now. I promised her, and she glided out of the gate.' Of the dreadful agitation that followed the disappearance of this girl I can give no better idea than by saying I not only committed the additional error of locking up the house on my re-entrance, but omitted to dispose of the key then in my pocket by flinging it into the street or dropping it in the hall as I went up. The fact is I was so absorbed by the thought of the danger I stood in from this girl, I forgot everything else. Hannah's pale face, Hannah's look of terror, as she turned from my side and flitted down the street, were continually before me. I could not escape them. The form of the dead man lying below was less vivid. It was as though I were tied in fancy to this woman of the white face, fluttering down the midnight streets, that she would fail in something, come back or be brought back, that I should find her standing white and horror-stricken on the front steps when I went down in the morning, was like a nightmare to me. I began to think no other result possible, that she never would or could win her way, unchallenged, to that little cottage in a distant village, that I had but sent a trailing flag of danger out into the world with this wretched girl, danger that would come back to me with the first burst of morning light. But even those thoughts faded after a while before the realisation of the peril I was in, as long as the key and papers remained in my possession how to get rid of them. I dared not leave my room again, or open my window. Someone might see me and remember it. Indeed, I was afraid to move about in my room. Mr. Leavenworth might hear me. Yes, my morbid terror had reached that point. I was fearful of one whose ears myself had forever closed, imagined him in his bed beneath, and wakeful to the least sound. But the necessity of doing something with these evidences of guilt, finally overcame this morbid anxiety, and drawing the two letters from my pocket, I had not yet undressed. I chose out the most dangerous of the two, that written by Mr. Leavenworth himself, and, chewing it till it was a mere pulp, threw it into a corner, but the other had blood on it, and nothing, not even the hope of safety, could induce me to put it to my lips. I was forced to lie with it clenched in my hand and the flitting image of Hannah before my eyes till the slow morning broke. I have heard it said that a year in heaven seems like a day. I can easily believe it. I know that an hour in hell seems an eternity. But with daylight came hope. Whether it was that the sunshine glancing on the wall made me think of Mary and all I was ready to do for her sake or whether it was the mere return of my natural stoicism in the presence of actual necessity I cannot say. I only know that I arose calm and master of myself. The problem of the letter and the key had solved itself also. Hide them? I would not try to. Instead of that I would put them in plain sight, trusting to that very fact for their being overlooked. Making the letter up into lighters I carried them into the spare room and placed them in a vase. Then taking the key in my hand went downstairs intending to insert it in the lock of the library door as i went by but miss Eleanor descending almost immediately behind me made this impossible i succeeded however in thrusting it without her knowledge among the filigree work of the gas fixture in the second hall and thus relieved went down into the breakfast room as self-possessed a man as ever crossed its threshold mary was there looking exceedingly pale and disheartened and as i met her eye which for a wonder turned upon me as i entered i could almost have laughed thinking of the deliverance that had come to her and of the time when i should proclaim myself to be the man who had accomplished it of the alarm that speedily followed and my action at that time and afterwards i need not speak in detail i behaved just as i would have done if i had had no hand in the murder I even forbore to touch the key, or go into the spare room, or make any movement, which I was not willing all the world should see. For, as things stood, there was not a shadow of evidence against me in the house. Neither was I a hard-working, uncomplaining secretary, whose passion for one of his employer's nieces was not even mistrusted by the lady herself, a person to be suspected of the crime which threw him out of a fair situation. So I performed all the duties of my position, summoning the police and going for Mr. Veeley, just as I would have done if those hours between me leaving Mr. Leavenworth for the first time and going down to breakfast in the morning had been blotted from my consciousness. And this was the principle upon which I based my action at the inquest. Leaving that half-hour and its occurrences out of the question, I resolved to answer such questions as might be put me as truthfully as I could. The great fault with men situated as I was usually being that they lied too much, thus committing themselves on unessential matters. But alas, in thus planning for my own safety, I forgot one thing, and that was the dangerous position in which I should thus place Mary Leavenworth as the one benefited by the crime. Not till the inference was drawn by a juror from the amount of wine found in Mr. Leavenworth's glass in the morning that he had come to his death shortly after my leaving him, did I realize what an opening I had made for suspicion in her direction, by admitting that I had heard a rustle on the stair a few minutes after going up. That all present believed it to have been made by Eleanor did not reassure me. She was so completely disconnected with the crime, I could not imagine suspicion holding to her for an instant. But Mary, if a curtain had been let down before me, pictured with the future as it has since developed i could not have seen more plainly what her position would be if attention were once directed towards her so in the vain endeavour to cover up my blunder i began to lie forced to admit that a shadow of disagreement had been lately visible between mr leavenworth and one of his nieces i threw the burden of it upon eleanor as the one best able to bear it the consequences were more serious than i anticipated direction had been given to suspicion which every additional evidence that now came up seemed by some strange fatality to strengthen not only was it proved that mr leavenworth's own pistol had been used in the assassination and that too by a person then in the house but i myself was brought to acknowledge that eleanor had learned from me only a little while before how to load aim and fire this very pistol a coincidence mischievous enough to have been of the devil's own making. Seeing all this, my fear of what the ladies would admit when questioned became very great. Let them in their innocence acknowledge that, upon my assent, Mary had gone to her uncle's room for the purpose of persuading him not to carry into effect the action he contemplated, and what consequences might not ensue. I was in a torment of apprehension but events of which I had at that time no knowledge had occurred to influence them. Eleanor, with some show of reason as it seems, not only suspected her cousin of the crime, but had informed her of the fact, and Mary, overcome with terror at finding there was more or less circumstantial evidence supporting the suspicion, decided to deny whatever told against herself, trusting to Eleanor's generosity not to be contradicted. Nor was her confidence misplaced." though by the course she took eleanor was forced to deepen the prejudice already rife against herself she not only forbore to contradict her cousin but when a true answer would have injured her actually refused to return any a lie being something she could not utter even to save one especially endeared to her this conduct of hers had one effect upon me it aroused my admiration and made me feel that here was a woman worth helping if assistance could be given without danger to myself. Yet I doubt if my sympathy would have led me into doing anything, if I had not perceived, by the stress laid upon certain well-known matters, that actual danger hovered about us all, while the letter and key remained in the house. Even before the handkerchief was produced, I had made up my mind to attempt their destruction. But when that was brought up and shown, I became so alarmed, I immediately rose and, making my way under some pretence or other to the floors above, snatched the key from the gas fixture, the lighters from the vase, and hastening with them down the hall to Mary Leavenworth's room, went in under the expectation of finding a fire there in which to destroy them. But to my heavy disappointment there were only a few smouldering ashes in the grate, and thwarted in my design I stood hesitating what to do, when I heard someone coming up the stairs alive to the consequences of being found in that room at that time i cast the lighters into the grate and started for the door but in the quick move i made the key flew from my hand and slid under a chair aghast at the mischance i paused but the sound of approaching steps increasing i lost all control over myself and fled from the room and indeed i had no time to lose i had barely reached my own door when eleanor leavenworth followed by two servants appeared at the top of the staircase and proceeded towards the room i had just left the sight reassured me she would see the key and take some means of disposing it and indeed i always supposed her to have done so for no further word of the key or letter ever came to my ears this may explain why the questionable position in which Eleanor soon found herself awakened in me no great anxiety I thought the suspicions of the police rested upon nothing more tangible than the peculiarity of her manner at the inquest, and the discovery of her handkerchief on the scene of the tragedy. I did not know they possessed what might be called absolute proof of her connection with the crime. But if I had, I doubt if my course would have been any different. Mary's peril was the one thing capable of influencing me, and she did not appear to be in peril on the contrary every one by common consent seemed to ignore all appearance of guilt on her part if mr gryce whom i soon learned to fear had given one sign of suspicion or mr raymond whom i speedily recognized as my most persistent though unconscious foe had betrayed the least distrust of her i should have taken warning but they did not and lulled into a false security by their manner I let the days go by without suffering any fears on her account, but not without many anxieties for myself. Hannah's existence precluded all sense of personal security. Knowing the determination of the police to find her, I trod the verge of an awful suspense continually. Meantime the wretched certainty was forcing itself upon me that I had lost, instead of gained, a hold on Mary Leavenworth not only did she evince the most utmost horror of the deed which had made her mistress of her uncle's wealth but owing as i believed to the influence of mr raymond soon gave evidence that she was losing to a certain extent the characteristics of mind and heart which had made me hopeful of winning her by this deed of blood this revelation drove me almost insane under the terrible restraint forced upon me i walked my weary round in a state of mind bordering on frenzy Many and many a time have I stopped in my work, wiped my pen and laid it down with the idea that I could not repress myself another moment, but I have always taken it up again and gone on with my task. Mr. Raymond has sometimes shown his wonder at my sitting in my dead employer's chair. Great Heaven! It was my only safeguard! By keeping the murder constantly before my mind I was enabled to restrain myself from any inconsiderate action. At last there came a time when my agony could no longer be suppressed. Going down the stairs one evening with Mr. Raymond, I saw a strange gentleman standing in the reception-room, looking at Mary Leavenworth in a way that would have made my blood boil, even if I had not heard him whisper these words, but you are my wife and know it, whatever you may say or do. It was the lightning stroke of my life. After what I had done to make her mine, to hear another claim her as already his own, was stunning, maddening. It forced a demonstration from me. I had either to yell in my fury, or deal the man beneath some tremendous blow in my hatred. I did not dare to shriek, so I struck the blow. Demanding his name from Mr. Raymond, and hearing that it was, as I expected, clavering, I flung caution, reason, common sense, all to the winds, and in a moment of fury denounced him as the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth. The next instant I would have given worlds to recall my words. What had I done but drawn attention to myself in thus accusing a man against whom nothing could of course be proved? But recall now was impossible. So after a night of thought I did the next best thing. I gave a superstitious reason for my action, and so restored myself to my former position without eradicating from the mind of Mr. Raymond that vague doubt of the man which my own safety demanded but I had no intention of going any further, nor should I have done so if I had not observed that for some reason Mr. Raymond was willing to suspect Mr. Clavering. But that once seen, revenge took possession of me, and I asked myself if the burden of this crime could be thrown on this man. Still, I do not believe that any active results would have followed this self-questioning if I had not overheard a whispered conversation between two of the servants, in which i learned that mr Clavering had been seen to enter the house on the night of the murder but was not seen to leave it that determined me with such a fact for a starting point what might i not hope to accomplish hannah alone stood in my way while she remained alive i saw nothing but ruin before me i made up my mind to destroy her and satisfy my hatred of mr Clavering at one blow but how by what means could i reach her without deserting my post or make away with her without exciting fresh suspicion. The problem seemed insolvable, but Truman Harwell has not played the part of a machine so long without result. Before I had studied the question a day, light broke upon it, and I saw that the only way to accomplish my plans was to inveigle her into destroying herself. No sooner had this thought matured that I hastened to act upon it. Knowing the tremendous risk I ran I took every precaution locking myself up in my room i wrote her a letter in printed characters she having distinctly told me she could not read writing in which i played upon her ignorance foolish fondness and irish superstition by telling her i dreamed of her every night and wondered if she did of me was afraid she didn't so enclosed her a little charm which if she would use according to directions would give her the most beautiful visions these directions were For her first to destroy my letter by burning it, next to take in her hand the packet I was careful to enclose, swallow the powder accompanying it, and go to bed. The powder was a deadly dose of poison, and the packet was, as you know, a forged confession, falsely criminating Henry Clavering. Enclosing all these in an envelope in the corner of which I had marked a cross, I directed it according to agreement to Mrs. Belden, and sent it then followed the greatest period of suspense i had yet endured though i had purposely refrained from putting my name to the letter i felt that the chances of detection were very great let her depart in the least particular from the course i had marked out for her and fatal results must ensue if she opened the enclosed packet mistrusted the powder took mrs belden into her confidence or even failed to burn my letter all would be lost i could not be sure of her or know the results of my scheme except through the newspapers? Do you think I kept watch of the countenances about me, devoured the telegraphic news, or started when the bell rang? And when a few days since I read that short paragraph in the paper, which assured me that my efforts had at least produced the death of the woman I feared, do you think I experienced any sense of relief? But of that why speak? In six hours had come the summons from Mr. Gryce, and, let these prison walls, this confession itself, tell the rest. I am no longer capable of speech or action. End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 39. The Outcome of a Great Crime Leave her to heaven, and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. HAMLET. For she is wise if I can judge of her and fair she is, if that mine eyes be true, and true she is, as she has proved herself, and therefore like herself, wise, fair, and true, shall she be placed in my constant soul. Merchant of Venice O Eleanor! I cried, as I made my way into her presence. Are you prepared for very good news? News that will brighten these pale cheeks, and give the light back to these eyes, and make life hopeful and sweet to you once more? Tell me,' I urged, stooping over her where she sat, for she looked ready to faint. "'I don't know,' she faltered. "'I fear your idea of good news and mine may differ. No news can be good, but—' "'What?' I asked, taking her hands in mine, with a smile that ought to have reassured her. It was one of such profound happiness. "'Tell me. Do not be afraid.' but she was her dreadful burden had lain upon her so long it had become a part of her being how could she realize it was founded on a mistake that she had no cause to fear the past present or future but when the truth was made known to her when with all the fervor and gentle tact of which i was capable i showed her that her suspicions had been groundless and that truman harwell and not mary was accountable for the evidences of crime which had led her into attributing to her cousin the guilt of her uncle's death, her first words were a prayer to be taken to the one she had so wronged. "'Take me to her! Oh, take me to her! I cannot breathe or think till I have begged pardon of her on my knees! Oh, my unjust accusation! My unjust accusation!' Seeing the state she was in, I deemed it wise to humour her, So, procuring a carriage, I drove with her to her cousin's home. "'Mary will spurn me. She will not even look at me. And she will be right,' she cried, as we rolled away up the avenue. "'An outrage like this can never be forgiven. But God knows I thought myself justified in my suspicions. If you knew—' "'I do know,' I interposed. "'Mary acknowledges that the circumstantial evidence against her was so overwhelming—' She was almost staggered herself, asking if she could be guiltless with such proofs against her. But— "'Wait! Oh, wait! Did Mary say that?' "'Yes.' "'Today?' "'Yes.' "'Mary must be changed.' I did not answer. I wanted her to see for herself the extent of that change. But when, in a few minutes later, the carriage stopped and I hurried with her into the house, which had been the scene of so much misery. I was hardly prepared for the difference in her own countenance which the hall-light revealed. Her eyes were bright, her cheeks were brilliant, her brow lifted and free from shadow. So quickly does the ice of despair melt in the sunshine of hope. Thomas, who had opened the door, was sombrely glad to see his mistress again. "'Miss Leavenworth is in the drawing-room,' said he. I nodded, then seeing that Eleanor could scarcely move for agitation, "'asked her whether she would go in at once, or wait till she was more composed. "'I will go in at once. I cannot wait.' "'And slipping from my grasp, she crossed the hall and laid her hand upon the drawing-room curtain, "'when it was suddenly lifted from within, and Mary stepped out. "'Mary!' "'Eleanor!' "'The ring of those voices told everything.' I did not need to glance their way, to know that Eleanor had fallen at her cousin's feet, and that her cousin had affrightedly lifted her. I did not need to hear, "'My sin against you is too great. You cannot forgive me.' Followed by the low, "'My shame is great enough to lead me to forgive anything.' To know that the lifelong shadow between these two had dissolved like a cloud, and that for the future bright days of mutual confidence and sympathy were in store." Yet, when a half hour or so later I heard the door of the reception-room into which I had retired softly open, and looking up saw Mary standing on the threshold, with the light of true humility on her face, I owned that I was surprised at the softening which had taken place in her haughty beauty. Blessed is the shame that purifies, I inwardly murmured, and advancing held out my hand with the respect and sympathy I never thought to feel for her again. The action seemed to touch her, "'Blushing deeply, she came and stood by my side. "'I thank you,' said she. "'I have much to be grateful for. "'How much I never realized till to-night. "'But I cannot speak of it now. "'What I wish is for you to come in and help me persuade Eleanor "'to accept this fortune from my hands. "'It is hers, you know. "'Was willed to her, or would have been, if—' "'Wait,' said I, in the trepidation which this appeal to me "'on such a subject somehow awakened. "'Have you weighed this matter well?' "'Is it your determined purpose to transfer your fortune into your cousin's hands?' Her look was enough without the low, "'Ah, how can you ask me?' that followed it. Mr. Clavering was sitting by the side of Eleanor when we entered the drawing-room. He immediately rose, and drawing me to one side, earnestly said, "'Before the courtesies of the hour pass between us, Mr. Raymond, allow me to tender you my apology.' You have in your possession a document which ought never to have been forced upon you. Founded upon a mistake, the act was an insult, which I bitterly regret. If, in consideration of my mental misery at that time, you can pardon it, I shall feel for ever indebted to you. If not, Mr. Clavering say no more." The occurrences of that day belong to a past which i for one have made up my mind to forget as soon as possible the future promises too richly for us to dwell on bygone miseries and with a look of mutual understanding and friendship we hasten to rejoin the ladies of the conversation that followed it is only necessary to state the result Eleanor, remaining firm in her refusal to accept property so stained by guilt it was finally agreed upon that it should be devoted to the erection and sustainment of some charitable institution of magnitude sufficient to be a recognized benefit to the city and its unfortunate poor. This settled our thoughts returned to our friends, especially to Mr. Veely. He ought to know, said Mary, he has grieved like a father over us, and in her spirit of penitence she would have undertaken the unhappy task of telling him the truth, but Eleanor with her accustomed generosity, would not hear of this. No, Mary, said she, you have suffered enough. Mr. Raymond and I will go. And leaving them there with the light of growing hope and confidence on their faces, we went out again into the night, and so into a dream from which I have never waked, though the shine of her dear eyes have been now the lodestar of my life for many happy, happy months." End of chapter 39 Recording by Kevin Green End of the Leavenworth case by Anna Catherine Green Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or Mc Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.